Literally speaking, a trailhead marks the start of journey. But for TM Rastigar, it's just the latest marker. Yeah, I remember hiding in a bomb shelter. Um, I was just thinking about that on the way here because I was like, oh, what Don and I going to talk about? And, you know, for me as a kid then, you know, I was barely over a year old. This was with when Saddam Hussein and his forces were bombing Tehran. Hiding in our, in our basement to me was fun because it was like the whole family was there. There was food. And usually when you get Iranians and food, next thing you know, there's someone playing the drums and dancing. So I didn't re really realize that we were hiding from bombs. The CEO of Trailhead joins us to talk about his life from Iran to Germany to Boise how he and Trailhead came together, and some of what's exciting in Boise's growing tech and startup scene. Next. The Boise Dev Podcast is brought to you by Anthony's Restaurant in downtown Boise. It's in the JR Simplot building adjacent to the Jump Plaza, and it's one of my wife and I's favorite spots. I'm a big seafood guy. They have some amazing dishes there. The oysters, of course, are excellent. Their crab, their fresh fish is so good. They call it the essence of the Northwest, and they, they say it's because they jet in the fish from the docks in Seattle straight to Boise, and they layer that with local options, beers, wines, coffees, ice cream, and the dishes on the menu, everything I've tried has been so good because it's fresh, uh, but the chef there prepares it in really inventive, fun, and interesting ways. The setting is, is really cool too, right on the Jump Plaza there. You can park in the JR Simplot Company garage, go up the elevator and you're there. It's actually, for a downtown restaurant, really easy to get to. You can make your reservations online at anthonys.com. It's a great place for dinners, families, business lunches, and the whole lot. Give it a try. We appreciate their support of the Boise Dev Podcast. It's Anthony's in downtown Boise. This is the Boise Dev Podcast. Here's your host, Don Day. TM Rastigar, CEO and Executive Director of Trailhead. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Don. So it's winter in Boise, very cold. We'll run this uh, in early 2023. Um, and, you know, that cold weather just makes me think of all the things that are hot in Boise. And Trailhead is like at the center of just so many things. Uh, so we're excited to have you on. Um, you have lived in Boise a long time, um, but you've lived all over the world too. Tell us a little bit about your path to, to, to Boise and Trailhead. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I've been here for almost 23 years now. You're a native. Anybody over like five years is native. That's, I was, that's my rule. I was hoping you'd label me as that. <laughs> you know, I'll take that home as a trophy today. But, um, you know, I was actually born uh, with a different name. TM Rastegar is what you know me as. I was born Seyyed Tiyama Rastegare Shariat Panahi. I was born in the early 80s in Iran, uh, right on the heels of the Islamic Revolution, right into the war with Iraq. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mom was actually working for the royal, for the king, for the royal guard. So for many reasons we had to bail. So we fled, we were refugees. We left in 84 and we were actually on our way from Tehran to the United States and had to make a stop to change planes in Frankfurt where we found out that we didn't have the proper paperwork to actually come to the United States. So my parents said the whole, I don't know if you watched the movie The Terminal with Tom Hanks. He basically lives in like the transit area for a couple of months because he doesn't have the proper paperwork. That was us for about three wow. days. So my parents weren't let, we, they didn't let us on the plane and we didn't want to go back. And so after a few days of, you know, brushing their teeth in the bathrooms in the transit area of the airport and eating airport food, they decided, what the heck, let's just apply for asylum here. We'll make a life for ourselves here in Frankfurt. So that's how I ended up in Frankfurt. Grew up there. So you were like one, two years old? Like yeah, really I was, I was, little. Not even two. I was 18 months old. Okay. Yeah, I was very little, very young. I uh, didn't quite know what was going on. Sure. I thought it was kind of fun. Um, I do have memories of, of back then. Wow. Um, matter of fact, I remember hiding in a bomb shelter. Um, I was just thinking about that on the way here because I was like, oh, what Don and I going to talk about? And, you know, for me as a kid then, you know, I was barely over a year old. This was with when Saddam Hussein and his forces were mm -hmm. bombing Tehran. Hiding in our, in our basement to me was fun because it was like the whole family was there. There was food. And usually when you get Iranians and food, 
next thing you know, there's someone playing the drums and right. dancing. So I didn't really realize that we were hiding from bombs. It People was more... trying to make the best probably of a really tough situation and, and have that togetherness in that community. Right, right. So, so yeah, that was um, when I was very young. And so, I, yeah, I pretty much grew up in Germany. I'm very German, really wired like a German culturally, socially. Um, lived there for 18 years in a city just outside of Frankfurt. But when we got there, we did live in a refugee settlement camp for about three years before we, you know, got working permit. My dad, my mom got permits to work, learn the language. They also both had to go back to school to like translate their professional certificates huh. to something that the Germans would accept. Right. So pretty tough early years, um, but you know, great, great childhood and, and uh, upbringing in Frankfurt. It's, I still call it my hometown, which is weird. I've lived in Boise now longer than I have anywhere in the world. And so, yeah, uh, when I turned 18, or right before I turned 18, we actually became German citizens. And in Germany, the path to citizenship is really hard and long as opposed to in the United States. And so I remember it was the summer we got our German passports and two months later we immigrated to the United States. And so I came here in 2000 uh, as an immigrant. My parents had H1B1 visas for work, to work for my, uh, my um, their cousin actually out Meridian, huh. a company called PKG, who I later then worked for yeah, too. Yeah. And I came here as an F1 student to, and I went to Centennial. So for people who might not know the H1s and F1s and all the, the different, what, oh, is yeah. like, what is F1? What does that mean? F1 is for an, uh, for students. So you're basically an international student and you, uh, depending on what stage of your, you know, school career or wherever you're at, whether it's college or high school, an F1 basically gives you the right to stay here for a year and attend a school. Okay. And so I went to Centennial. Uh, I know in your previous podcast with Travis, you guys uh, got a little into the the mascot thing. Yeah, I'm a patriot. The patriot, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say. Which yeah. was kind of funny. interesting, <laughs> funny, because I was an immigrant, and, and also we'll get into this. This was, you know, the year before 9-11. Oh, yeah. And so uh, I graduated in 2000. Had a great time here. You know, my friends made a lot of friends. They called me Fez, which I didn't really know what that meant at the time right, until right. they showed me the character on TV. Right. Um, I was kind of the cool foreigner. Right. Um, never had the intention to staying here in Boise, so I had to deal with my parents. They said, finish high school, turn 18, and you can go back to Europe, you can go back to Germany, you can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And so I did, I came here, checked the boxes, took my high school diploma, this is in the summer of 2000, uh, went to the Goethe University in Frankfurt, and they laughed me out of the room. They said, we don't accept US high school diplomas. Mm -hmm. And so even though the rest of your like the first 11 years of your school career, 12, I guess, kindergarten, kindergarten. Yeah. So the first 12 years of your school career were German edu education. You come to a Meridian school, finish mm -hmm. and they say, sorry, tough luck. And so, yeah, you point something out that's uh, we can we can dissect this a bit. So so in Germany, school's different, obviously. So yeah. we go from first to fourth grade. That's elementary. Then we go from fifth through 10th. That's secondary. Most people do an apprenticeship after 10th grade. A, a smaller percentage actually goes on to get their diploma, right? And that's 11th through 13th. So you accumulate your diploma points starting in 11th and 12th grade. And 13th grade is basically a test year. Right. So when I showed up, I kind of skipped their 12th grade. Mm. Uh, I thought I was pretty clever because I said, you know, I saved a year. I only went for, for 12 years. I got a diploma. Right. I also got my driver's license while I was there for like 28 bucks <laughs> and in two weeks, which over there is, you know, it was like 3,000 euros at the time and it took you a year. And so, you know, with, and my, again, my parents are Iranian. So of course, by the time I'm 25, I'm supposed to be a surgeon, an engineer and an right. astronaut. Right. So I'm standing there going, I have to repeat 11, 12 and 13. That's three years. I thought I saved a year. So in my head, I'm like, I'm that negative four. I can't do this. I, I don't want to do this. Uh, what are my options? That, well, you can always go back to America. A little tongue in cheek. You right. know, I don't look German. My name is in German. And so this was before 9-11. And Goethe University in Frankfurt is actually really close to the U.S. Embassy. So I, I literally walked from the university, just gotten rejected. To the U.S. Embassy, I walked in and I said, I want to apply for a student visa to go to Boise State. 
Fascinating. And the only thing I knew about Boise State, and it, the people in the embassy had no idea where Boise was. These are Americans. Sure, yeah. Like, Boise? Boise where? I go, Idaho. <laughs> this was my first encounter with Iowa? Ohio? <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's Idaho. I go, the blue turf. And they recognized it. Right. They knew what that was. And so applied for a visa, got another F1, but this time for four years because it's for, it was for my bachelor degree to go to Boise State. Got that thing two weeks later in the mail. And so this was, you present this as it was a very compressed, like this happened within about an hour or two. Is that is that literally your whole life kind of pivoted on that little it is. decision? Indeed, yeah. They I, said no, and you were like, well, I got to figure something out. You walked across the street, and yep. your life changed. Yeah, think about it. I was, the, I was for the first, I'm an only child, so I always lived with my parents. And in my, in Iranian culture, you, you kind of stay with your parents until you're married, basically. Mm -hmm. Right? And so this was... I was back in Germany by myself. My parents were here in Boise and I was on my own, not really prepared to get rejected. I mean, I had, I thought I had it all figured out, right? I was going to go to university there, um, study whatever I wanted. And so it became crunch time. I, you know, from the time I got rejected, I didn't want to call my parents and tell them that. Right. Because they would have said, well, I told you so you should have stayed here. But here you go, young buck. You went out on your own. When you talk about that cultural ex expectation of yeah. the astronaut doctor 25-year-old right. thing, and so that's probably weighing on you. Would have been a letdown, right? Yeah. So I, I felt like I need to figure out what I'm going to do. And so it just felt safer to come back here, be with my parents, live with them. You know a few people probably, some Centennial students have gone to the right? State. Yeah, so yeah I played soccer. Times. played soccer at Centennial, so made a lot of friends. Um, and, you know, really that year at Centennial, I... Uh, I had a hard time both culturally and I was 18, you know, it's a tough age to like leave everything behind and find new friends, but also came from a very progressive urban area. Now, Frankfurt has like the highest crime rate in Europe. Very, a lot of social tensions there, a lot of immigrants and foreigners, obviously Germany's history with that. And so when I came here, it was like, you know, someone pulled the e-brake in a car and just slowed everything down. Meridian now isn't a very urban place, but 20 years ago, yeah. significantly less so, right? Matter of fact, we live... Uh, so when I first moved here, uh, uh, I came before my parents came because I had to start school. They still had to wrap things up. And I lived with my aunt and uncles, and they lived in the Hickories mm -hmm. in West Boise. Their house actually backed up to HP. Yeah. And so, you know, for me coming from, I basically lived in what you consider, I lived in the hood. I lived on the block in the hood with mostly immigrants and asylum seekers. And, you know, from there coming to the Hickories, where I'm looking at this HP campus that is like, it's a park, yeah. basically, with, yeah. and now it's a city park, yeah. with, with, with a pond and a barbecue area and a soccer field. I had never seen anything like that before. So, you know. It was a tough year, but through friendships and through sport, I, I kind of got to see the see some sides of, of Boise and Idaho that I didn't expect. You know, I had visited here before as a called me a tourist. I visited my family here before, but I sort of fell in love with the place. Mm -hmm. um, it was camping and honestly, it was snowboarding. You know, once my friends got me out and I got to experience the nature, I was a city kid. Yeah. You know, and just that experience in itself got taught me to appreciate certain things about this place so coming back was 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 less of a like oh i have to go back to that place that i don't like it was more of a well i'm gonna end up living with my parents now that wasn't part of the plan <laughs> and i kind of have to explain to them why i'm back um but you know all in all great four years i met my wife at boise state um, she was an art student. I was a business student. As they say, opposites attract. <laughs> In this case, it was true. And, you know, this was about 20 years ago now. And um, really had a great time at Boise State. And through sports, mostly through soccer and being part of the student body, just built relationships with people and just fell in love with the place more and more. And, yeah, that's how Boise became home for me. Yeah. So you alluded to 9-11 a little bit there, obviously. So you, you'd moved back to Boise in this seminal event in our history comes along and is I don't think there's a way to say that it wasn't racially charged and mm -hmm. this country was roiled a little bit and as were many countries across the world um, and Boise it is no secret or surprise is an overwhelmingly white place 
you allude to kind of some of those things that happened. Did that have a direct impact on you? Did you feel people's perceptions changed? Certainly wrongly, but do you feel that those things happened? And, and how did that maybe have an impact on where you went next? They did happen. And mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a good question. And a little bit of context. So fortunately or unfortunately, so I, you know, I'm sort of a, a product of many major historical events. So yeah. Islamic Revolution, first of its kind. Then I went to Germany. I saw the wall come down. Yeah. And I was I was eight or nine years yeah, old. Eighty nine. So yeah. Right. And so yeah, major event in history. And then I came here. Nine eleven happened. So hmm. having grown up in Germany as a refugee, as an immigrant, you know, with parents who speak a different language, I was. You can say I was used to racism. I knew it was there. I mean, you you alluded to a slur, right? I mean, oh yeah, people calling you the the overhyped character on a on a sitcom, which was funny before nine eleven. Sure, but is is a is a slur. I it mean, was I a slur. That that's a it was a slur. Intent or not. And for me, it was something I leaned into. I was like, they call me sure. something. Oh, yeah. and I played the, in high school. In you high were school. all trying to figure exactly. out exactly. And I, yeah. I just played the role, and then I figured out who he was. I'm like, I'm actually not Mexican. That's weird. Right. Um, but yeah, when nine eleven happened, a, a few things manifested as a result of that. For one, you know, the first thing I felt was an incredible amount of just shame, right? Because in the early days, it wasn't so clear who did it and how it happened. Once they called it a terrorist attack, people from the Middle East, I'm doing right. quotation marks here, um, and I am from the Middle East. Sure. Um, I think a lot of my friends at the time also were set back by the fact that people who look like me did this to the United States, right? And so a, f- a few things happened. Actually, my own friends turned on me. They, uh, I remember two of my best friends from high school, they, they came to my house on 9-11 and they wanted me to come outside and they wanted to brawl. And I remember this distinctly. And they turned out to be you know, two of my best friends after that. But it was sort of their reaction to it. Right? Sure. We're all immature. We all had reactions. We all had reactions. Yeah. So mine was first of shame. And this may sound wrong, but I honestly don't. I was just like, please, please don't let it be an Iranian. Sure. Like whoever did this, not an Iranian. Right. right? And so as, as things kind of revealed themselves and, and I actually use it as an opportunity to to educate my friends about you know, I'm Iranian. I'm actually Caucasian. I'm Indo-European. The people who did this are, and I don't want to call them out for what they are because we're not better or worse, but I was trying to get them to see that, you know, who attacked them wasn't me or my people right. or, or even an idea. As a young person, right, you're just trying to figure out how to keep yourself protected. And, yeah, and, and diffuse things. And, yeah. Yeah, and, and really, like, more so, not even ethnically, like, it's not the ideology that, that I or my parents represent, right? And so that was one thing that manifested itself. It made for a lot of, at first it was tense, but eventually good debates with my friends and a lot of questions that they had and that I had for them. You know, most of my friends came from military families that their fathers fought in Vietnam. They were Vietnam vets. So there was a lot of context that everyone brought to the table, but, but it wasn't obvious what the context was until we right. kind of dealt with it. Another way, I, I did notice people at the store especially, and I told this to my wife later, and she says that I'm totally imagining it could be, but um, you know, I would get looks at the store. Yeah. I would get looks at the indoor soccer place that I went to. It's, it's odd, like I was a very proud, I'm still a very proud Iranian, so I'd always wear my Iran jersey, playing out in the soccer, in the, in the indoor place at Meridian, and I got the looks, which, those were sort of the soft things, but another way it manifested itself, the Patriot Act, mm-hmm. which which is why I made a joke about the Centennial Patriots. Patriots. Yeah. You know, I'm at this, at this point, I'm on, an, on a visa, on an F1 student visa. My dad is on an H1 visa, but so we don't have green cards, let alone U.S. citizenship. And now all of a sudden we're required to show up once every three months at the immigration center off Overland, take fingerprints and talk to a person about purchases we made with our credit cards and why my math grade was so poor at Boise State. Um, you know, is, is there, are there other things you do with you? you're a young person and it's math. <laughs> it's math. It was hard. <laughs> and where I grew up, we learned math differently. But yeah, I had to explain things like, yeah, I don't really do other things with the time that I'm supposed to spend on math. Um, so that was at first, you know, a bit, 
hurt. It hurt. It hurt because you know, we're like, gosh, I, well, we haven't done anything to these people. Like, why are they making us do this? But as time went on, you know, I started to understand, and I kept getting. Every airport I was at, it was, the joke was, oh, here comes the random, wait for it, wait, oh, there it is. Sayyidiyam Rastagar Sharyapanahi, step to the side, every, like clockwork, right? And so I kind of got used to it, but I never encountered, as long as I complied with things, I never encountered anything hateful or derogatory or discriminatory, other than the fact that they pulled me out of line. Sure, sure. And so going to to the immigration office with my dad because it was only for males that were older than 18 and they you know it was seven countries that if you were from there born there now mind you not i'm here on a german passport right you're a german citizen but in the german passport it says born in tehran so i'm automatically one of those that has to go but my dad and i quickly figured out that it was i think it's Fiesta de guadalajara there's a mexican restaurant right on that corner good right mexican it's a good one right (laughs) so we're like hey, why don't we make a thing out of this? Like every time we go there afterwards, we go get some Mexican food. And we did. And so it kind of made, made it fun. Did that for about a year. And then things fizzled out in terms of any kind of, you know, post 9-11 things that I felt sure. around me. But it was impactful. It did shape, shape my identity. It did shape um, how I viewed myself in the U.S., and in a weird way, Don, because I was on the fence, right? So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a student at Boise State. This is my first year. I'm on a visa. So theoretically, when that visa runs out, I'm going back to Europe. Right. And, if, and I think 9-11 and the aftermath of 9-11 and the social dynamics of it made me double down. It made me sort of claim, no, I do belong here. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you why, why we're alike and not different. And so I adopted language, you know, I, I, I kind of became, I would evangelize my friends and their parents, you know, to learn more about Iran and our history and, and things like that, you know, and, and like the fact that I don't want to keep mentioning that I'm Caucasian, but it's funny because the first time I saw one of those bubble sheets in high school where you have to yeah, fill in Tron, yeah. what ethnicity you are. I mean, dude, in Germany, that is it's illegal. Yeah. We don't, we can't do that for, right. for not, historical yeah, yeah, reasons, yeah, right? Obvious reasons and so I'm looking right. at this bubble sheet and I go, well, I'm not, <laughs> mm, I'm not, I didn't think I was Caucasian. Right. I didn't, obviously I'm like, I'm not Hispanic. I'm, I'm, I am Middle Eastern. So I was split. I was like, well, Middle East, but that's, that's not an ethnicity, is it? But then there was Asian and I go, well, Iran is in Asia. So I'm Asian, so I fill it out, right? Until my teacher at the time kind of made a derogatory gesture about what Asians, who Asians are. He made a certain gesture with his eyes, and I go, oh, my goodness. oh not me. Okay, I get that. But anyways, I, I, I think what it did, it sort of made me adopt an identity that I otherwise wouldn't have maybe adopted as, as quickly and as passionately as I did. Because I was, you know... The same thing happened to me in Germany, actually. So growing up, and I don't know if we want to talk about the World Cup here, but growing <laughs> up, I, I didn't feel German, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I spoke the language. I was an only child, so at home we spoke Farsi. We ate Persian food. We were very Iranian. We were very tribal. Um, and it wasn't until 1990, so right after the wall fell, Germany unites east and west. They play in the World Cup for the first time in a long time as one country, mm-hmm. which I didn't quite understand the significance of it. All I remember was seeing David Hasselhoff on the Berlin Wall singing, <laughs> I've been looking for freedom. And I thought it was cool because, you know, he drove Kit and Knight Rider. Right, 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 right. And he was in Baywatch, so I thought he was cool, dude. But it was when Germany beat Argentina in 1990, people poured out on the streets. And it was a wild party. It's much like what you see now if you look up what's happening in Argentina as the team is returning, having won the World Cup. And there was also a strange dynamic in Germany because people don't wave the German flag. Right. At least they didn't then. There was a, there was a shame associated with it. Nationalistic pride is not much of a thing from what I understand in, in Germany for reasons right. that are complicated. Yeah. Right. And so, but that night, people had their flags out. Hmm. And my neighbor who who really never acknowledged me. He kind of was roll his eyes, oh, you know, blackheads from the Middle East, they're, you know, not like us. This was my interpretation of what he thought. I don't know if that's what he thought. Sure. 
But that night, he called me by my name. He goes, Tim, we won. And he hands me this German flag, right? And I grab this flag, and I'm, I'm just like, I'm celebrating the German victory, which makes me German now. Right. That was the night, the first time in my life that I felt German. It was similar when 9-11 happened. I, I had to find my own way of being patriotic mm -hmm. in like a critical way, mm -hmm. not rah, 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 you know, durka, durka, forgive me for saying it, but that, sure. the, those were the slurs in those days that were thrown at me. I kind of had to double down on, no, I'm, I'm one of you. And I, may be, I might look different and I come from a different background, but it, it's something I had to do in Germany. I was wired to integrate, to assimilate, mm -hmm to prove to people that I belong. And so, yeah, long story short, I, I think for all the negative things that 9-11 caused in, in my life and in my parents' life, it also accelerated me accepting this place as my home in a weird way. So I think that steps well into your professional career. I leave Boise State and you go, do you go immediately to PKG? Is that? I did. So you go and you work for, for your dad's company and you were there a long time. Tell us about that experience and, and what you did. Uh, and that company's no longer operating. Yeah, unfortunately, right? yeah, yeah. They, they, they're no, long, no, no longer operating. Yeah, so I actually did um, an internship while I was still a student at PKG. And uh, yeah, my dad worked there. My uncle was the owner. Okay. And... Uh, Internship was, was kind of in a marketing role. I did some research for them, um, what it would look like for them if they were to expand in Europe, because I spoke German. Sure. I could kind of do some research and understand the, the landscape in, in Europe for them. And I, uh, I quickly realized that I really have no clue of what I'm doing, right? Like this adult world, this professional world was so far removed from anything I've known or had done. And so uh, I hit it off with, with a few people. My uncle was like, you know, internship's going well. People seem to like you. You want to stay on. And so as an F1 student, uh, you can't just stay in the United States right. and work. So right. I had to get it was called an OPT. It's a one year. It's a temporary work permit. Uh, and so the stipulations are you find an employer that's willing to take you. You get this work permit. You can stay for a year and work. And so I did that. I uh, joined them in, in a sales capacity um, and, and some marketing, basically the continuation of, of the internship that I did. And the cool part about this company is they were, they were a manufacturing company. And people who ran that place were all engineers. I was not an engineer whatsoever. <laughs> um, and so I got to learn a lot about technical things, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering. They also manufactured the things that they designed. So we had a full-blown manufacturing floor. And so I got to learn a lot about, you know, what it takes to build a thing. And it wasn't just things. They built products that went into medical devices, into aircraft, into defense applications. So highly regulated industries. And so I, I basically grew up there as a professional. They gave me a chance. I was there for almost 12 years, did various, various roles and functions. Um, Eventually, towards the end of my tenure there, I sort of, I'm the kind of person, I, I, I call it uh, my, my, my ceiling of complexities. I sort of hit my ceiling um, of, you know, I stopped learning. I kept encountering things that I didn't have the right tools for or frameworks for. I couldn't interpret them in, in, in the depth that I would have liked to and others were doing. And I could see, oh, they have an understanding of this thing, of this topic that I don't. Um, so I decided to go back to school. I went back to Boise State, so I bleed blue. I went there from undergrad <laughs> and my grad. Uh, I did the executive MBA program for two years. And many ways, many ways that was life changing, both personally and professionally. And so, yeah, the 12 years at PKG, really, I look back at that's where I grew up as, as a professional, learned a lot of things. And then quickly pivoted into, uh, you know, after my the EMBA program, I went back to PKG. And I realized this thing about me is like, I want to break stuff. Like I want to try stuff that is super risky. And not only do I not want to be held accountable in a bad way for it not working, I want to get a pat on the back. Right. So during the EMBA program, I learned all about design thinking and how startups are built and ran. 
and you know, and, and then how, how you get into a hyper growth company. You know, software was the big thing, and we were still building physical products right. at PKG. And like I said, these were went into medical devices and aircraft, so they had to work the first time every time. Because failing, failing culturally was not acceptable. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and for good reason, right? Yeah. Humans life, human lives aren't at stake, and so I had this urge to just do something different, um, do something I knew very little about, but something that was fresh and in an early stage to where even the, the people in the company didn't quite know what they were doing. I wanted to like grow with that. Okay. And so I, uh, I, found, I found Vacasa yeah. and did, uh, joined their corporate development team. So I did m and I bought their competition for them for about three and a half years. And it had all the things I was looking for, right? Um, really young culture, young both. The people that worked there were young. The founder was only, I mean, a year older than I. Um, Eric Brion, who uh-huh. actually lived in Boise at the time. Uh, you know, all my coworkers were fairly young. I actually was one of the older people there. And this is in my, I was in my early 30s. You get um, to work downtown for the first time. Which was super cool. Yeah. You know, exactly. I worked a slight bit more urban than the Hickory's in Meridian. Nailed Not it. Not Frankfurt. Nailed but it. But a tiny bit more urban. Getting there. Right? There are a couple of coffee shops. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, you know, we were right. Uh, we were in the building where Bacon uh-huh. was. So, yeah, coffee shops around us. There's a vibe. You know, there, there's, a, there's a downtown business crowd. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And I also enjoyed working with the younger crowd and tackling problems like I knew nothing about. So for the first time, I'm working alongside, again, people who are younger than I, but they knew more than I did. And it kind of opened my eyes to like, oh boy, this whole knowledge economy and digital economy is something I haven't really dove into, don't know much about. Yeah. So it was a great experience for me there. I did that for three and a half years, built some great relationships. I got to travel the country to buy businesses, which was... And so for people, kind of set us in time here. It was a pretty fast growth time for for Vacasa. This is like mid-2010s? This is 2018. Okay, so... Is when I joined them. Yeah, they had had not raised uh, their first round yet. They were definitely in hyper-growth mode. I believe Mm -hmm. when I joined them, they had 2,000 homes that they managed. Mm -hmm. By the time I left three and a half years later... They managed over 22,000 wow. homes. So they, they grew tenfold. Half of that growth came through acquisitions. The other half came through organic mm-hmm. growth. But, you know, for me, I get, to, I get to tell my kids this. I go, I got to travel the world with a bag full of money and bought companies for them. I mean, it was a vacation rental industry. It was fun. I got yeah. to go to the McCall's of all these other communities across the United States, you know, where people go to vacate. Um, you know, I got to go to South Africa and, and look at a company there for them. Um, and quickly um, realized that it was having a toll on me. Mm-hmm. It was hard. It was a lot of traveling. I also, uh, I was actually sick with something done. I, uh, with the EMBA program, we finished in Vietnam. We fin- you do an international residency. And we went to, with Boise State, went to Vietnam, and I actually contracted a H. pylori there. Hmm. I didn't know that. It's like the leading cause of stomach cancer. And it's basically, you feel like you have food poisoning 24-7. And I had that for four years. I had that throughout my entire tenure right. at Vacasa. And so, you know, it's something I talk about, and we'll talk about Trella, but to, to, to the people that I work with now with founders is the mental health aspect. So I was just in a constant state of anxiety about getting one of these, you know, stomach cramps and it would take me out. I couldn't go to work. You know, I was in South Africa. I was in New England. I was far away from home. So I was, my baseline of anxiety was actually pretty high this whole time. Yeah, bad. And I didn't realize what was going on. I didn't know I was sick. And so, you know, it, it, it just wore me down. Yeah, I had two young children, a family. I'm an only child. My parents live here. I got to have taken care of them. Their, their retirement age. And so I, I was just running thin. And, you know, my boss, I was just pretty open with her at the time. And funny enough, she, she, she wasn't surprised. And uh, she asked me this. She goes, so I get it. You want to leave. You know, you, you're not quite sure what's going on with you, but this isn't working for you for, for whatever reason. She goes, have you heard of this place called Trailhead? I said, no. Like... Foothills? Trail? Right, right, right. Or are you talking about the shaved ice place on State Street? <laughs> she said, no, no, no. It's, it's over. There's a couple of blocks from here. She, and I'm a member. 
And when I go there, she said, I tend to think of you, like those people that are kind of like you. I had no idea what she meant. <laughs> and so I kind of shrugged it off, like, ah, eh, whatever. So I applied at the, I did the, you know, I did the HP thing, I did the Micron thing, something, you know, a young buck with an MBA would do. I applied all the big tech companies right. with, with big names. Um, I also applied at Trailhead. She forwarded me the Trailhead's newsletter, and in the tiniest font possible at the very bottom, it said, we are looking for a new executive director. <laughs> so I look, I Google executive director, never heard of this title. Sure. It's like, oh, nonprofits. I was like, oh boy. I don't, I didn't know what a nonprofit was. I just immediately in my head, I go, no profit, no paycheck, <laughs> no food. On, no, not for me. Right. right? And so. Uh, and so in the same time frame, you know, Trail had launched 2015-ish. Yeah. And it kind of gets going and then has some. Management turnover, I think, is the yeah. fairest way to put it without getting too into that. Mm -hmm. And kind of becomes a co-working place. Right. Uh, Boise Dev started it at Trailhead North, the the now defunct um, sort of second co-working spot. But I think, you were an alumni. We were yeah, proud of that. But I think that that's kind of where it turned into a, a co-working space, which I don't think was the original vision. Not at all. Which leads to some of the turmoil. So they yeah. bring you in and... Things start to change. Talk to us about that. Unbeknownst to me, I, I didn't understand some of those dynamics that you just described. I only did because I was. <laughs> I, was <laughs> I knew there. There. I you saw were there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and to be fair, any any young nonprofit that goes through a leadership transition is vulnerable. Yeah. Because even with any, whether you're nonprofit or for profit, in that early stage, you know, a lot of the ethos and the culture of any organizations are tied to people. Mm -hmm. And so when there's a transition, you know, vulnerable, they trail it went about eight or nine months without an executive director. So the board was very hands-on. They had an interim who was running the venture college, it was Mike Sumter. Mm -hmm. He, he kind of took the reins there. Um, you know, I, I went to the first interview and with the board and I was floored by just the, the, the people who were on this board. And frankly, I got the sense, like, man, these people give a crap. Right. They're not just, this is not just a board position for them to like rub shoulders with other important board members. They really cared. And so I was really intrigued. Um, Faisal Shah, who's one of the founders of, of Trellet, wasn't at this first interview. He was busy building a startup. <laughs> um, figuring out app to text life. Figuring out yeah. app to text, right? And uh, yeah, I think they even shared space he did. here. Yeah. At, at he did. Tell place. stories about that one, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I then met with him one on one at, at Slow by Slow, actually. And um, his passion just infected me. Uh -huh. I was like, okay, I need to find out more. So I snuck into one of the events. No one checked me at the front. I didn't have to sign in. I was like, that's the first thing I'll probably change. But anyways, I get in, I sit down, and there's this You're young... already thinking like an owner, right? Like, well, already. Yeah, yeah, was yeah. All, I didn't even know, but yeah. they had me, right? So I walk in, there's this young woman on stage, and they called it um, Stand Up Startup Night, where basically members got to go on stage and tell their story and what they work on. And this young woman who had a full-time gig with her husband as a photographer is talking about the fact that she launched a nonprofit called the Boise Period Project. Mm -hmm. And her passion is to give out menstruation products to women who can't afford it. So at this point, mind blown. Mm -hmm. All the stereotypical things I thought of this place just shattered, right? Right. And I go, I wanna help her, I can help her, I can do this. Long story short, I go back to the second interview, fired up, I wanted this gig, I get the gig, I arrive at Trellet and I realize what you just described. I realized that there's been some history and that the original vision for this place was to really be the center of gravity for the entrepreneurial community to come together and to be a steward of this community and to, to help entrepreneurs succeed. I mean, that's what it was launched under, right? That vision. And I, I remember my first month there, you know, this is sort of what signifies this to me. I kept hearing realtors selling homes hmm. at Trailhead on the phone. They were members. And, you know, these weren't cheap homes that they were selling. And I kind of, in my head, started to figure out, like, these aren't the people who are supposed to help. Right. I mean, it's great. They're, do, they're selling homes. I'm all for it. Yeah. But you know, the city's paying our rent, we provide a subsidized rate to the early stage entrepreneurs who are then building cool businesses, creating jobs. And so when I realized that the product had lost its, its site or its identity, I also realized that there were some relationships um, and, and you know, 
for nonprofits especially, you know, and having been launched in part by the city, these personal relationships were the bread and butter of Trailhead. A lot of bridges were burned. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of folks wanted my time to sit me down and to tell me what they thought of Trailhead and why it's changed and what they used to love about it. Yeah, I was open to that. I wanted to hear because I didn't know much about the place. I had been, been there for a month. And so I just soaked it all up. I, I realized that the space, which you know, you, you said it became a co-working <clears throat> space, and I agree with that. When I looked at what Trell had, had to offer and still has to offer, I kind of looked at you know four pillars. It's the co-working space, it's educational programming, it's our mentorship piece, and then there's this thing I call ecosystem building, which is fancy a fancy way of saying community building. I looked at those four and, I, and I was, I'm a product person, right? I came from the for-profit productizing everything. I was like, if I were to productize those four things and then put us up to compete, call it that, space is the most commoditized product we have sure. here. So for us to lean in to be in a co-working space that we're not charging enough for, it just didn't pencil, it didn't make sense. And it was a narrative I quickly had to pivot us mm-hmm. from. But it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy because you know these things had happened over time. Perceptions were were created and built over time by our major stakeholders. And so yes, early on the 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 thing I was charged myself with was we need to change our own narrative, change the language that we use, and change around what we actually do for people, from going to a co-working space to becoming a place of community where we take space as a commodity, because you can get space anywhere, nothing special, right? We take space and then we wrap around these services to make that place special, Mm -hmm. right? We were in the people's business. We're not in the subletting business. And you were at Trailhead North. Mm -hmm. That's where you started. And I think Jeff Reynolds was your neighbor at the time. And Joe Jasuski. We called it El Norte. El Norte. (laughs) Because it was the fancy trailheads. Oh, okay. (laughs) So El Norte um, was actually played a key role in, in, in the evolution of Trailhead in yeah. those days because I had worked out of Trailhead North because I had a private office there. Mm. And I would go back and forth from, you know, it's right across the street. I would go to Base Camp, our yeah. original location. So just a set scene, for, this is in the 8th Street Marketplace building, uh, Trailhead North. And then uh, the original Trailhead is the corner of uh, Myrtle and 8th. Exactly. Yep. So yeah. about a block away. About a block away. Um, again, if, if you walk downtown, great excuse to get out and walk on 8th Street. It's like the artery, is, you know, yeah. between, I call it, the, there's the 8th Street, which is the heart of the tech community in Boise. And on the south side of Myrtle, it's sort of nonprofit alley because mm-hmm. you have the opera, you have the libraries there. Um the ballet is there. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, w- I would walk back and forth and I, I quickly picked up on a few things. I go, people are supposed to go to base camp, which is the cheaper rate, get a hot desk, and then graduate to north mm-hmm. when they're at a certain point with their business. It's not happening. The other thing I realized quickly was that there's two different vibes. There's a totally different vibe at north than from base camp. Yeah. And then what that led me to was I, I quickly then understood these are two different communities. Yeah. Like for us to have you know, synergy between these two, there's some work to be done here. They were physically separated, even though it was just a block. Right. The setting was different. The fact that El Norte or Trailhead North had private offices just made it attractive to a different crowd. Yeah. And so operating North for a few years, it became a landlording gig. Yeah. It was straight up subletting. And we, uh, while the city paid then and still pays our rent, at Base Camp, our original location, Trellet itself paid the rent at Trellet North, which is something you and I I've had, come to learn. had a nice chat about, right? <laughs> when we first got to meet each other. Yeah. And so I had to make it pencil. I realized you can't. Yeah. That space arbitrage game, I mean, read about WeWork, right? Like, read about it's we- tricky. It's tricky. Plus, you've been there. There was this large room we called the Learning Center. Yeah. We couldn't rent it. If, if I could have... ClickBank was in there for a while. That's and, right. And, yeah. it, and it served well for like a transitional place for, for us to keep businesses here in Boise and keep them operating here while they built their other office. But that didn't happen enough for us to just be 
going at full steam. And then the pandemic happened. Mm -hmm. And so Charlotte North is basically totally dead. It's myself and two other people, members, who showed up on a consistent basis. And it's a lot of space, a couple thousand square feet, square feet, right? Yeah, it's like 78, it was 7,800 square feet. It's huge. And, you know, just for three people to be there, (laughs) you know, it became pretty obvious. I go, okay, when this thing ends, this was in like 2020, we will, there's going to be a a resurgence of demand. People are leaving the office spaces. They're kicking their leases and not entering into fight. We will, this is going to be our heyday, right? So as this thing was dragging on, I realized like, this isn't anytime soon. And even if it does bounce back, I really am not convinced of this resurgence and everybody's going to look for, you know, a, a co-working space or like a... To be elbow to elbow with other humans. Right. Yeah. That was the big... And, and so we had to shut down for a month. I had to furlough people. And being at base camp, our other space, which is also a giant... It's the old Idaho candy factory, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a giant warehouse space being there for a month literally by myself was sobering and it was pretty scary because you didn't know what was going to happen at the time i certainly didn't and so you know we took the ppp money i looked at trailhead north and we made the bittersweet decision and the board backed me on this to to shut down operations there and really double down on on base camp on that community moving away from co-working and subletting and moving back towards the original vision under which Trailhead was launched. And so, yeah, uh, El Norte is no more. Yeah. Um, great memories. Great companies came out of there, including Boise Dev, you know, including Love Every, Love Every. Natural Intelligence Love Every's system. got a little bigger valuation than Boise Dev. Well, I still mention you in the but same breath. Sure, you know. sure, sure. Um, <laughs> and natural, natural Intelligence is there, and gosh, who else? I mean, Reynolds and Myers started there. Right. Um, a whole bunch of things started there, right? And so that it did sort of serve that goal, maybe just not at the level that everybody had hoped for. It did, it, and it did initially. Mm-hmm. And, and then as time went on, and, and there was a confluence of confluence yeah. of factors, you know, and the, the the pandemic being one of them, it, it, it turned more into into a subletting gig, a landlording gig. Um, you know, the last company that sort of came out of there, um, there's actually a few. Um, but uh, Killer Creamery, mm-hmm. who was a member at Base Camp back in the day and started there, actually then graduated into the space at North. So I got to say, like, we did it once. We, we, the synergy that we always talked about existed, but it was good for us. Yeah. It, it gave us focus. It, it narrowed, you know, even being f- physically in one space. Um, and then I got to focus on the next domino, which was... You know, Don, at this time, I'm still by myself. It's me, myself, and I. So I'm cleaning toilets. I'm making payroll. I'm the COO, CFO, C- call, any O you can think of, I'm it. Yeah, I was burning. It was yeah. hard, and I was burning the candle from both ends, and it was hard to find people. You know, McDonald's at this point is paying $14 an hour. And, you know, nonprofit work is the kind of work that attracts People who are willing to take less money and then substitute that lack of income with something they're passionate about. Mm -hmm. That was me, right? So I was passionate about people, business, and community. I knew that about myself. Those three things lived under Trailhead's roof and still live there today. So I was able to take a cut and do this work, and it was still really meaningful to me. And my staff is the same way. And so the next domino for me was to build a team. It's like, I got to get out of this solo mode. I, I won't last long. It's not good for the organization, sure. let alone me. And so, yeah, I was able to build a team. Uh, we do an internship program with WorkU at Boise State. And it's a really good way to get to know people. I hired on one full-time person through that program and then found a program manager. She had just worked at the Central District Health. <laughs> so she had a tumultuous two years. Yeah, I was looking for something new. And so long story short, you know, we are now positioned with a really strong team, with a really focused board of directors. One thing to notice to, to note is, you know, Jason Crawforth, mm-hmm. and Jason was one of the original founders of Trailhead. He had left the board for his own reasons and has now rekindled his relationship with Trailhead. 
I think in part because we're back on track as to what the original vision was when he started it, and he's rejoined the board. Um, you know, we came off of a record year in 2019, both impact-wise and, and financially for Trailhead in 2019 was a stellar year, followed by, you know, two pretty heavy punches in the gut, 2020-2021. And, you know, we have some, I'll be happy to share what they are, but I just read your article about uh, your optimism when it comes to journalism. Mm-hmm. I sit here very optimistic for 2023 and what's 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 beyond that for our organization. I think, you know, with, with the structural changes I just talked about, you know, the, I call this Trailhead 3.0, the evolution of, you know, what it started as, then it became a co-working space. Now it's back to, you know, being the steward of the ecosystem, you know, being a place of community for entrepreneurs looking forward. So let's do this. Here's what I want to do. Let's talk about Entrepreneur Week and then we'll come back and I want you to describe what 3.0 is. So so let's go back a little bit. Boise Startup Week kind of gets kicking about the time you moved to Trailhead. I think maybe it started right before. Right a year before. before. So I I missed the first one. And um, I, I remember distinctly Nick Krabs, the coacher at the time, like walks in through the doors at Trail. I had no idea who he was. And he, this is in August, by the way. Mm-hmm. I had just started. And he goes, you and I get to th- do this thing called Entrepreneur Week. <laughs> at the time, it was called Startup Week. Right, right, right. I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> hey, plus, why does he get to tell me what to do? This is... <laughs> and and what is Startup Week? And so he's very convincing as to why I should give a crap. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a force of nature, I would say. Yes, yes. Force of nature, great influencer and salesperson. He, he said all the right things mm-hmm. uh, in, in our first encounter. And so I didn't know about Startup Week. And at the, at the time, Startup Week wasn't formally a Trailhead program. Trailhead was one of the stakeholders who helped put it on. Right. It really was started by the city Yeah. and, and, and a handful of entrepreneurs. And so... It was a blessing and a curse because here we are in August and he's telling me about this event where we're going to host thousands of people in October. And I'm still like drinking from fire hose. I, I cursed him. I was like, this is ridiculous. I did not sign up for that. What is this thing? Who is this guy? Who are these people? But quickly I realized, I'm like, what better way? Because I just got to roll up my sleeves and get alongside of, and you know, on Boise Startup Week was put on by volunteers, is put on by sponsors. I got to know the stakeholders, the constituents, and all the other people who were active in this community in like two months by rolling up my sleeve, getting alongside them, and getting to work. Mm-hmm. So that was the blessing. The curse was that it was a ton of work, and it was just too much to handle at the time. Um, but it actually turned out to be a fantastic event. And it, it did some things for, I think, Trailhead and for Entrepreneur Week. Now it's called Entrepreneur Week for Startup Week itself. Harder to say. Harder to say. More descriptive. Yeah, more descriptive, wider it's typical tent, branding, right? More like, inclusive. Boy, it's harder to say B-E-W <laughs> than B-S-W, but it makes more sense, so we're stuck. Yeah, we're yeah. stuck. <laughs> and you could always get away with pew. Uh-huh, yeah. As long as you don't do pew, pew and, and do the shooting gun thing. Um, Good thing we don't work in Portland. Because Pew would not work. Oh, yeah, anyway, that's right. Yeah, just, yeah. To throw a dumb joke in there. Yeah. <laughs> that's actually funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so 2018 was great. It, it really, you know, now looking back at it, there was sort of the sense of we're, we're going to like fake it till we make it. Right. Like, is there really a startup community here? You know, this is again, this is 2018. You know, the narrative was there, there are no great ideas in Boise. Right. There is no capital in Boise. And so we were, and plus, the way Boise promoted itself, willingly or not, both from an outwork speaking voice and what people were saying about us and other communities was, it's a cheap place to live, that's great healthcare, and that's where I want to retire. Yeah. So th- those were the attributes I knew about Boise. And so we're trying to like not maybe disprove those at all. They hold true and Here's another side of Boise that you may not know of. It's a great place to start a business. It's a very friendly community, you know. Uh, uh, it, two, two of the behavioral ingredients, as I call them, came to light. It had a culture of supporting entrepreneurs, 
an entrepreneurial week, Boise Startup Week at the time showed it to me. Mm-hmm. And it had, Boise had and still has a culture of sharing knowledge. Yeah. Pe- be- be- people Historically, his, right? Always. And, and people being accessible to one another. Yeah. And so I was like, we're, we're not really faking it too. We made it. Not enough people know about this yet. And we sort of need to prove it to them and be a storyteller, be a convener, and then project us outward. And so 2019, the following year, this was now, I had one of them under my belt and I knew how this thing was supposed to look and feel and, 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 and be product produced. 2019, we leaned in and that was a stellar year uh, because for all the great impact we made, all the money we gave away to these early stage entrepreneurs, all of whom are still in business, by the way. Yeah. So from 2018 to 2022, all of the winners are still in business. You know, this thing happened, Inc. Magazine picked it up. Mm-hmm. And we, Boise then ranked fourth in the list of surge cities, I believe they call mm-hmm. it, and was ranked ahead of San Francisco and uh, Boston as a great place to start your startup. I remember writing about that because we don't tend to do stories about Boise being on lists because they're, the, it's every day, right? Some lists, some, but the Inc. Magazine thing was a little different because of what it said and who it said it to. And like you said, it's, you know, ahead of big, typical startup-y places like San Francisco all of a sudden. And that really did seem to sort of mark a clarion of like, oh, hey, something's happening in Boise that you probably saw. I think I saw a few people, but a lot of people didn't see it. Mm-hmm. That Inc. Magazine thing was kind of the turning point of like, oh, hey, we've got stuff happening here that wasn't really that obvious before. Exactly. It's sort of, it, it, it was a marker. Mm-hmm. And back to what you just said, the reason you covered it, it was telling the story. It had the narrative that didn't speak about how cheap it is to live right. here. It wasn't about potatoes and blue turf. Well, Those things were, I'm sure were mentioned. Well but said. That wasn't yeah. what it, it wasn't yeah. Idaho's potatoes, blue turf, and, and some nice yeah. River rafting. It told, it it told stories of entrepreneurs who started businesses mm-hmm. here. And, you know, and I distinctly remember you know, Jessica Rolf, who was the founder of, of, uh, of, of Love Every and was the founder of other uh, startups before that. She was talking about how, uh, for a woman, Boise is a great place to start a business. Because, and she, you know, the days in the summer are so long. There was, you know, uh, great child care. She took her kids to the Foothills School of mm-hmm. Arts, which was just down the street. And it gave her a great life balance. And I never even thought about, you know, a woman's perspective to starting a, or a woman who has children, I should say. And so it even educated me on some, this article, right? It educated me on some things, but it got us attention. It ranked us up there. And I sort of sensed like, okay, we are punching above our weight line here. And, and we're not the ones that are just saying that anymore. Other people are saying that about us. Other communities are taking stock of Boise. And so it became really the the main program of Trailhead, if you will, at that point. We realized, you know, and Nick Krabs make this, makes this joke all the time. He goes, you know, it's the greatest gift I've dropped in your lap to Trailhead ever. <laughs> and he's not wrong about that, right? Because we do stand on the shoulder of giants. We, we, we were a part of it. We weren't necessarily the force behind it to get it to where it was, but its natural home was Trailhead at the time. Yeah. And so from 2019, we go two years remote. Couple tough years in the pandemic. Tough years. And then this past year, you're outgrowing jump, right? Yeah. Like it, it's, you're bursting at the seams. Which is a great problem to have. Yeah. And as an organizer, a horrible problem to have. Sure. But uh, yeah, it was, it was signified, by, signified by a lot of growth this last, this last Entrepreneur Week in October. It was also signified by um, the amounts of money that were given away are just higher. And Nick and I had this, we had this urge of, we traveled the country. We go to other startup weeks. So startup week is actually a branded thing that yeah. was started by tech stars, right? So we went to Seattle startup week, Portland startup week. Um, you know, we hit up other communities, mostly in the West, and we kind of look at their ecosystems. Who are the players? Where are the trailheads? What roles do universities play? And we quickly realized this: like, our our startup week is better. Mm-hmm. It's bigger. There's more energy. And it was just more authentic to Idaho. And what I mean by that is the other startup weeks were very uh, disjointed, decentralized. 
which worked for those communities. Like you would go to Seattle and there'd be things on Capitol Hill, there'd be things at Queen the Anne, there'd be stuff down by and there was the stadium. These siloed yeah. communities yeah, yeah, yeah. who then would, you know, resonate with one of these and go to it. Whereas we were still trying to build a tent. As soon as we had our tent, then we try to widen the tent poles and we go from Boise Startup Week to branding it as Boise Entrepreneur Week because we believed act, there are actually more entrepreneurs than startup entrepreneurs sure. in Idaho. And it also played into the history of, you know, J.R. Simplot and the Parkinson's brothers yeah. and just where we came from as a community. And we wanted entrepreneurs to not like look at Startup Week and go, well, that's not for me. I'm not a startup guy sure. or, or gal. You wanted the tent to be big enough for to, to use like Simplot as an example. I mean, that business has been around for generations now. And so my wife works there and, you know, they're acquiring things. And, they're entrepreneurs. They're exactly. certainly not a startup. No. <laughs> you can't call Simplot a startup, but no, no. they are entrepreneurs. And so giving you that wider lens helps bring more people into that tent that keeps getting wider. Keeps getting wider. And I, and I, and I use the word ecosystem a lot. And, and so in this, in this ecosystem of stakeholders for this community, the established businesses, the, the Microns, the Simplot, they play a tremendous role. Mm-hmm. They are actually the sources of many different uh, versions of, call it capital, Mm -hmm. institutional capital. Um, They have intellectual property. They have resources. Dropping those acorns, which is in your logo. Dropping those acorns. You know, they could be a a client to one of these startups. Mm -hmm. The startup could learn, this this entrepreneur could learn a lot of things from them. So us bridging between the startup community and the established business community, it's just a no-brainer. It happens at, at Entrepreneur Week. So yeah, long story short, after two years of, of uh, pivoting to, to virtual, which you know for, for Nick and I, this was not the event we wanted to have. It's not the reason we did it, right. but we, we had to keep it alive. And we sort of surged also in those two years because frank, frankly, I think we did a good job for a virtual event. The attendance numbers surprised all of us. Yeah. They were high. The amount of money we were able to raise really set us up for 2022. And you know, we collectively gave away over 300 grand, which is more than we have given away with all the prior Entrepreneur Week and Startup Weeks combined. And so we're looking at, at, at Entrepreneur Week as really as it's a key ingredient for this community here um, to lean into, to leverage. And we're grateful that the city is behind it. Um, and then they see the value in, 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 in this week. It's sort of like tree fort for entrepreneurs. Right. Matter of fact, we yeah. did in the early days, this is before um, I had anything to do with it. The, the fact that we have tracks at Entrepreneur Week, tech track, food track, grow track, was modeled after the different forts, the tree fort. So even the tree fort folks had in its early inception some influence as to how this thing looked like. And, you know, fast forward to today, it is Idaho's largest entrepreneurial event. Something I'm super proud of. Yeah. It, it, gives, it gives me the, the thing to work on that's, that's bigger than just myself and Trailhead. And it gives Trailhead also a, a platform to be the steward and really pull all of the other stakeholders in. Which is if we do want to pivot to the future, you know, I, I think Entrepreneur Week serves as a tool because it's 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 sort of a it's a neutral playing ground. Organizations and people can come to it. This is figuratively speaking. Leave their swords at the door for a week, not compete. It's sort of an all boats rise kumbaya vibe, and center around entrepreneurs and how and figure out how to help them succeed, mm-hmm. right? And so as I look forward for entrepreneur, we using it, leveraging it as a tool, because it would be foolish to just stop here and just keep doing this event sure. as we know it. Um, I'm a firm believer that over the years, the Treasure Valley, Boise, and Idaho in general has built assets. These assets are now pieces of the puzzle, if you will. They've been there for quite some time. I'm not taking credit for building any of these. I've, we Trailhead has contributed to some of them, built some of them. But I think the trick for our community looking 
at 2023 and beyond looking forward is learning a page or two from other communities who have figured out how to not only have these pieces of the puzzle, but to put them together in a way mm-hmm. that then is represents like a cohesive structure of resources and tools to now help entrepreneurs because we have them all. All the ingredients are on the table and the recipes are out there. And so is that is that what Trailhead 3.0 is? Is that, that is Trailhead that 3.0. puzzle together and cooking that recipe? Cooking that recipe, exactly. Um, fueled by something we haven't pursued before. Grants, is, uh, Trailhead hasn't d- dabbled in grants sure. much in the past. Um, and I looked around the country and we are considered, Trailhead is considered an ESO by the feds, an entrepreneurial support organization. Mm-hmm. ESOs around the country are fueled by grants. Yeah. And now, especially with the way, you know, the, the, the pool of money that is poured into grants by the feds is astronomical now. Um, I, I'm a firm believer that that's part of our future, that we, we need to land one of these grants in partnership with others who do similar work to us, but maybe upstream and downstream from sure. us. And that is what I'm talking like about. Women's Business Center type things. Women's yeah. Business Center, Hispanic, the Boise State yeah. Venture College, I can mention, Venture Capital, uh, .org, we got the ITC, there's Tech Help, there's the Veterans Entrepreneurial Alliance. I can go on, there's sure. many of them, who all sort of on this in this pipeline of resources come into play at one point or another. We need to assemble them. We need to get them to pull at the same string bring their value add to the table and really light this place on fire in terms of our entrepreneurial activity. That is what I see Trailhead 3.0 being. And frankly, being a nonprofit and being Switzerland in this ecosystem, mm-hmm. positions us to do that, to be the conduit, to be the steward, to be the glue that brings everyone together. I think that's a good place to stop. Lighting a fire on these cold winter days, <laughs> metaphorically, is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, Team Rastagar, CEO and Executive Director of Trailhead, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Don.